good i just hadn't seen you in a minute well i haven't seen you and uh yeah i was gone i was out of town so you know you were vacationing i was i was uh south of france and (laughs) you know south of france name one town south of france (laughs) (laughs) it sounded like something i've heard as a a sort of uppity elitist kind of we'll say south of fulton county yeah (laughs) i went south of fulton county that's Uh, true but did you enjoy yourself? Uh, I did. Yeah, we had a good time. Did you get a tan? Uh, I don't know. You tell me. Mm, you look the same complexion to me. Yeah. But you're, you're generally dark. I'm in, that, I'm in that stage of life where um, I don't really care about getting a tan. So I, Was I, there a time when you did care about getting a tan? Well, when, you know, when you're younger, you're like, and you, like you want to get darker or whatever. Like you want to tan uh-huh. like when you go to, but like now I just don't want to ever have a sunburn. Uh-huh. My bald head. I don't want to have a sun. So yeah, I just cake. It's on too the, much work. I just yeah. So I just I used to not wear a lot of sunscreen. You know, the comfort now, outweighs the aesthetic at this point of life. Yeah, does it? Uh, yeah, for sure. So uh, oh, and when I'm you know laying out, let's say in the sun, <laughs> I like to find the shade. <laughs> That's the other thing. I'm always looking for like where's, under where's the, the umbrella? umbrella? Yeah, You're I want under that umbrella, man. The umbrella. Yep, for sure. Well. I'm glad yeah. you got some vitamin D. So I was away with my wife and had a little bit of vacation. You finished the grind of another semester of I did. seminary. Congratulations. Yes. I'm two-thirds of the way done. Two-thirds. Dude. Does that yeah. feel good? Uh, yes. Probably in sheer tonnage of hours, are you more than two-thirds there? Because you're taking a little bit lighter load yeah, next year. Yeah, a little, yeah. I, uh, but, but not, not, not close. Not significant. Not, uh, not, uh, not a big gap. Yeah. All right. Um. Cool, man. But we, we've kind of been off our rhythm of, of episodes in the last few oh, weeks. Oh, yeah. It's been hard to keep up, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. But we're back. Yeah. We've got today's interesting episode and then... I've made an editorial decision oh, about our summer series. That I'm quietly protesting. <laughs> I guess it's not so quiet anymore. Well, um, uh, the writer's room is open to suggestions. Okay. All right. But our summer series, which I at least, it will at least be one week long. <laughs> I'll tell you this. <laughs> and it will be a monologue episode. I will not be participating. Oh, my gosh. Well, no, not, not out of protest. I'm just, I don't know that I'll have a lot to add here. Okay, James is being humble. I am not a scholar of. Well, are we are we allowed to say? Are we? Sure. Do you want to tease it? We're gonna do a little series on summer saints. Summer saints. We're calling it summer saints. That oh, we're calling it that. Yeah, that's a terrible name. Okay, well, it sounds like these were saints for the summer. Like, you just said you had nothing to add to the series, and you critique the name <laughs> the minute I speak it. Caleb wants to explore the life. Of different saints of old that yes. you might have heard of, but know or, little or, about, or, or you may you've not know at all. Them. And I'm just making the case that I don't know that I, I would suggest maybe he too, but I can only speak for myself that I don't really know enough about any one saint of old that is where I feel like like I can pontificate for an hour. For the requirements of this podcast, I'm sure it'll be sufficient. <laughs> 
he does not believe we have any uh, uh, PhD level uh, listeners in, you know, I don't know, church history and certain individuals. Wouldn't it be funny if like you bring up the person that you were talking about for next week and it turns out we've got somebody in our church that's like read everything out there on that person and they're... Well, then we'd have to bring them on. Yeah. We'd have to Do you want to throw on. out the name just so you can see if you have a better co-host than me for next week? Okay, so next week's episode is going to be on a a second century, so that's uh, around 150 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, a second century saint named Perpetua, a woman who was martyred for her faith, um, and she has an incredible story, and has... I remember reading this story the first time, and it really moved me. And so I thought it would be a good one. So we're going to share the story of Perpetua. If you are familiar with the works of or the life of Perpetua, and you feel better equipped to uh, co-host this episode with Caleb, feel free to send one of us a text or email or something. Reach out. I actually know a lady who, who's written a, a good paper on Perpetua. In I the, may get her church? a call. No, not in no, our not church. church. Okay, but. so you're going to replace me with some unknown... Lady. I, you just gave me a thought. <laughs> you just gave me a thought. Oh, man. Okay, so there's a little uh, appetizer little, little for, tease. for what's coming up. Yeah. Uh, but today, we're going to do something that oh, we do. Uh, this isn't new for us in terms of thinking through some sort of cultural issue and trying to see how it trickles down into the church. We've done reviews of uh, different... Uh, public thinkers on topics like this related to culture. Um, So this isn't new to us, but it's, and this topic isn't new to us. I think we've, we've done, we've done a few episodes on technology, social media. um, Mostly because we have such massive Twitter followings for both of us. Yeah. So it's important to sometimes dissect that medium of which we both make such. I think I have three followers on Twitter. Congrats. I've never tweeted a tweet though. No, I take that back. I I tweeted once to another podcast who was asking for episode ideas, and I had an episode idea, and they responded back. That's my only tweet. Well, how long ago was that? Like a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago. Yeah, a few weeks. Somebody's ago. like, "Hey, what should we do?" And you're like, "Perpetua, Perpetua." <laughs> they didn't take the idea, so now it's our idea. It was nerdy in a similar fashion. Yeah, a topic that not a lot of people would care about, but. So that's that's my claim to fame on Twitter, is I got an episode uh, in the works for another podcast. Did they say they would do the episode you mm-hmm. suggested? Okay. They did, and I'm waiting on it. Who, what, what podcast is that? It was called Grace in Common. Mm-hmm. It is a podca- podcast by four Herman Bobbing scholars, uh, where they talk all things Herman Bobbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I'm sure... You're a diehard listener. <laughs> yeah. Niche, niche podcasting called They Want Their Idea Back. Okay. All right. So what's the, what's the, what's the name of the, of the article we're kind of springboarding uh, off The name of the article is Why the Past Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. I don't know who came up with that. It's not the usual sophisticated title of, of Jonathan Haidt, but... Uh, yeah. Well, it makes sense when you read the article. It is a long-form journalistic mm-hmm. piece. I think when you sent it to me in your edited format in Word, it initially was 18 pages. With, yeah, it was. And that was with 11 font. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So it was so a substantial lengthy. reading. Yeah. And took me three or four at walks. The, uh, published at the Atlantic. Um, and Jonathan Haidt is a uh, social psychologist at NYU, Columbia, one of those two. Um, Maybe that he's been at both. I think his technical field initially, I don't know if it, how he, he, I mean, I think it was moral psychology was sort yes, of the, he's the written a lot specialist field. And yes. so um, I, I was first introduced to him by my neighbor a number of years ago and read his book, his best-selling book called The, the Righteous Mind, mm -hmm. uh, which was a fascinating yes. read and have since read very The Coddling so. of the American Mind, which mm -hmm. was uh, also very insightful and interesting. Yeah. And uh, he's got a new one, I guess, on this topic forthcoming. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yes. Yes. So he's a guy, he thinks a lot about moral psychology, social psychology, and in the public realm really thinks a lot about um, cultural issues uh, and how our culture is kind of uh, understanding itself. Yeah, and he's, he writes uniquely, uh, so because you and I are so highly political, this is why we are um, so familiar with height. He, he actually writes quite a bit on trying to discern, understand, and nurture healthier, probably, engagement within the political space in particular. He's mm -hmm. trying to understand why such polarization yeah. is, is, or why, yeah. why, why there is such polarization yeah. in, in our times. And, it's kind of a centrist. Uh, a yeah. Bit, I would say. Yeah. At this point. And so we wanted to look at this article because... Uh, I think it's a, it, it might be helpful to recognize he's, a, uh, he's an atheist, mm -hmm. uh, ethnically Jewish mm -hmm. uh, atheist, and then has this, you know, that's the field that we were talking about. Yes. That he does. So not coming at this from an overtly, though he's, he writes extensively on kind of religious mm -hmm. things sometimes. So. And this article really deals with the, our current um, culture and social media and what that has kind of uh, done to us and how it's shaped our lots of areas of our lives. And we want to use it as kind of a springboard to talk about how these issues, which are cultural issues, which are cultural issues which we are a part because we are a part of this culture, also, uh, here's Caleb's original thought, cultural issues trickle down into the church sometimes. And um, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. yeah, you need to you need to quote me if you use that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, so are you saying church is downstream from culture? I, I say church is affected by culture. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Okay. And so we, we want to do that. So we're going to kind of briefly summarize and talk through uh, Haidt's article and then kind of ask some questions that would be helpful in how the church deals with some of the issues that arise from it. Now, he frames this in the biblical imagery of the Tower of Babel. Interestingly. Which is how he says he's going to frame it in his book and more extensively as kind of a, the metaphor for what's going on. I wasn't compelled after reading it that the metaphor is that profound. <laughs> it's like sometimes when you, you know when you hear a preacher and they give a, they give a, they give a, an analogy or a metaphor, an illustration, you're like, uh, okay, I, I kind of see it, but I don't, Fully see it. That's I don't know. Sounds That's like you've obviously been listening to other preachers than me recently. Well, I've listened to a lot of a lot of preachers <laughs> because I'm in a preaching class. Yes, but I'm just saying I would never use a point of reference, you know, and have it be only barely. You've never had an off illustration in all of your years. <laughs> I'm of preaching. joking. I'm sure that I have. Okay, humble yeah, yourself. Yeah. So the the Tower of Babel. Um, <laughs> 
Well, I, you want to frame it how he frames it from that or explain that? or Here's how I'll summarize it very shortly, and then okay. if you want to add. I think he says that uh, we have kind of built a Tower of Babel through this new age of the Internet, uh, social media, and technology that has actually turned on us to make us more divided and uh, has actually uh, reversed what we thought Babel would be for us, which, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I actually, I, I find it to be, I, I, know, I know him well enough to know that he probably reads the, the, the narrative of the Tower of Babel in Genesis and sees it as just a metaphor for something. I don't know that he, I don't think he sees that as history in any way. Mm -hmm. And I do think that there's an appropriate, because, you know, so much of what we read in the Bible is, is often an account of what obviously has happened in history. Um, but oftentimes capturing something that happened in, at a moment in history which we're also told that there's nothing new under the sun. So mm -hmm. a lot of what it captures in history are, it, it's not just things that happened then, it's things that yeah. continue to happen in different ways. And, yeah. and I do believe there is that technology in our generation has had, uh, there's been an attempt through technology to sort of, uh, in the, let's say, confusing of languages of Babel, that there's been an attempt to build uh, a sort of, a means of communication um, that would that would unify us or give us the ability to you know build a tower to to rid us of any dependency on God to try to work our way to the heavens so to speak yeah. and, and there is a sort of um, streak in I think the the technological development and in particularly people who are at the forefront of that industry there there is a streak of sort of like hey we can about how powerfully how powerfully we can build something or yeah. or whatever and, yeah. and sort of uh, yeah. insulate ourselves from uh, this world gone mad or whatever. And he's not wrong mm -hmm. <laughs> that the 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 building of technologies for the stated purpose of of you know bringing about some utopian world is devolving right before our eyes. Yes. Right. Yes. So so this is his words. He says. Uh, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong, very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. So he's basically saying the, the, the kind of the curse of the confusion of Babel is the story of America's division, is how I summarize. Mm -hmm. Summarize that. Okay. Um, but one of the issues that I think comes up to me that's more striking, a more striking image, is this kind of new reality uh, of what, this new reality for what life is for people, which is so, so heavily invested um, online, that is actually, one, fundamentally changing how we see reality, but I think also putting us in a reality that is, uh, is unhelpful. So, so here's, here's an image that I thought of um, that captures this. So you remember the movie Inception? Oh, you know I do. 
I love that movie. Okay. Okay. So in that movie, right, they, they go into people's dreams and uh, through these dream, you know, machines or whatever, and they, uh, and they, they get into people's subconscious and they uh, change things to, to affect right. the, the, when they wake up, real, mm-hmm. real, real things going on outside of the dream. Well, there's this scene, you know, um, where they, uh, they visit a chemist um, who is like, takes them downstairs into this basement and they're, they're, uh, they find a bunch of people, like lots of people sleeping on these uh, uh, dream sharing devices. It's like an opium den. Yeah, den it, that's, exa- that's a great metaphor of what it looks like. Yeah. And he says that these people are spending hours a day there dreaming together. Right. Like they all come in and they hook up and they dream and dream and dream. And, um, and they basically are constructing alternative lives. And the team, the, the, the characters who come down and are seeing this, they, they ask, quote, uh, they come here to fall asleep. And the chemist says, quote, no, they come here to wake up. Mm-hmm. I think that's what the Internet and social media and I'm going to use a, a spooky term, the metaverse oh, God. <laughs> is becoming for people. Is it, It's almost like that's their reality now. And the, 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 the world outside of the right. Internet becomes less important, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think it speaks to the discontented state of the human soul and and the underwhelming <laughs> um, reality that we live in for many people where they're just disenchanted with the way things are. And so there are all these avenues through technology to stimulate oneself, to find, um, uh, you, you, to create a a sort of fantasy world of sorts um, and to live a better story and to, uh, to, to live in a better narrative um, detached from reality or maybe, you know, being seen as something, a greater reality or an enhanced reality. But yeah, it's um, part of it's the boredom that has taken over mm-hmm. our world, the depression and anxiety that has taken over our world, the, uh, the sense of meaninglessness and yeah purposelessness that has taken over so much of our world so people are grasping mm-hmm. yeah. it seems and I think everyone can see now the the negatives of these platforms um, and technology and the internet um, and what they can do to us whereas what Hyde wants to unfold in this article is there was a time when people didn't see that when it was thought of in a similar way that people thought of it at the Tower of Babel this is all progress for us. Right. So this is where he gets into kind of unfolding the, the landscape for us over the last 10 years or so. He, he talks about how um, social media was seen as kind of a great progress for tech and democracy and kind of the, uh, the, the biggest next thing. This is paragraph three, James. He, he talks about how uh, the high point of this kind of uh, advance in technology um, was 2011, when you saw things like Google Translate come out on smartphones and um, you were seeing where there was a connectivity to the world that was happening mm-hmm. through Facebook, which, which I think was a good thing in many ways, um, where it's almost like Facebook could, could, as he says, overcome the curse of division by language through things like uh, Facebook Messenger having the ability to talk to people and Google Translate and other ways sure. to, to, to uh, kind of 
uh, meet those or get over those barriers. And um, it was kind of this outlook that said humanity could could do all the things that they thought they could never do. Mm-hmm. Um, and in February 2012, Haidt says, uh, as he prepared to take Facebook public, Mark Zuckerberg reflected on those extraordinary times set forth in his plans. He said, today our society has reached another tipping point. Facebook hoped to, quote, rewire the way people spread and consume information by giving them the power to share. It would help them to once again transform many of our core institutions and industries. So what he's pointing out is that these uh, companies like Facebook, um, Google, others, they they had from the beginning huge plans to almost rewire how we do democratic life, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, in a positive way. Um, but the assumption was that it would only be positive progress. Yes. Right? Yes. So there might have been, there was this idea of, hey, we're going to change things, and then and the changing of things would be inherently the bettering of things. I, I think of it like this, that, and I don't mean to be political or whatever, but, I, you know, when we think about something like COVID and what, what, what we, we knew that there was, when COVID sort of came off on the scene out of nowhere, we didn't know what we didn't know, there was this massive risk of like, if we're together in person and the spreading of this disease and how it would impact people and what would, and all that stuff. So in order to reduce risk physically, there's all these measures that we take, right? And what we've realized over two and a half years or two and a half years into this now is that there were other risks as well, Mm -hmm. right? There was risks of, you know, prolonged uh, isolating of people in the wearing, here's, here's a health thing. So, and I'm not saying these are equal, but like, if you wear a mask for long enough, what happens to gum health, dental health, and so forth, right? So you you trade one physical threat, but then you develop another physical ailment, perhaps, like, you know, cavities and the different things that have happened to a lot of kids who had to go to school day after day after day for two years with masks on and so forth, Mm -hmm. Um, or mental health effects of the things that we've done. So it's... And, all, and I'm not making a point of what somebody should do, shouldn't do. My only point is to say there's always more risks than we're actually accounting for. Yes. Right? Yes. You, you make one decision out of this obvious risk, but you don't realize that you're risking other things too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I remember in our yard a couple of years ago, we had seven trees on one side of our yard. And we wanted to get rid of them for reasons of, like, to expand the yard. They were they were a mess. It created a mess. And we, we had a smaller yard, so we were able to grow more grass and get more sun and da-da-da. Okay. So we do all that. We take seven trees out. Well, what did we find in the next fall? We had a massive drainage issue. Because now seven trees that were suck, soaking up and drinking the water that would come, there was nowhere for that water to go now. Yeah. So now... so. I, I solve one problem, mm-hmm. but I created a whole new problem. Yeah. And that's sort of what happens in this kind of thing. Yes. We, we create this new, like a lot of the technology, it's to solve certain problems, mm-hmm. but they're creating whole new problems that didn't exist before. Yeah. And Hai goes on to say basically that uh, Zuckerberg and others, they were successful in rewiring how we... 100% that, they've been that, successful. But what that looked like was not what they envisioned, Right. I think. And... He points out, uh, this is paragraph four, James, that 
civilizations have always had division. They've always had uh, both uh, things that bind them together and things that break them apart. But uh, he says there are four kind of major factors for large democracies or societies that truly are the kind of cords that bind people together. He says one is social capital, and what he means like that is social trust, um, where we have high levels of social trust um, with each other. Second, he says strong institutions, so where we have uh, robust institutions that we all are contributing to and benefiting from. And then lastly, he said shared stories. All those three things are important for holding democracies and societies Social capital, together. strong institutions, shared stories. Yes. And he says social media has weakened all three of those. He's 100% right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like 100%. So and how he kind of argues for that is uh, briefly here, he, he talks about first how social media, kind of the intent of it changes um, for people. Um, first, it was a place where you, and I remember this, I remember these early days of Facebook where you really just, all you were doing was posting photos of your, you know, your cool vacation or your, yeah, the or food your game eating. or something or... Yeah, or it was a cool way to, you know, message your friends or see what your friends are doing or where you're at and those sorts of things. Sure. But then it became a place where uh, you, your profiles had to be basically images that were curated, where it's almost like your your uh, your profile online becomes a part of yeah how you present yourself and it's very important so it becomes much more of a, a pressurized thing that where you present yourself rather than just a casual posting of uh, essentially personal branding at this point yes yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good way to summarize it um but then here's where i think he he nails how the form of social media changes and how it really corrupts everything so he says paragraphed in the next in, kind of in the next few years after 2009 facebook and twitter created the like button, the retweet button, and the share button. And this absolutely changes social media forever. Uh, now content was brought to your feed by what got the most shares or likes. And what the data shows is that the content that evokes the most emotion or anger gets the most likes, shares, and retweets. So what he's saying is, in those early days, your feed was just whatever the next person posted in there. Mm -hmm. So if me and James are online, if I post a picture, it goes immediately to the top because it's the newest thing. Mm -hmm. Now with these creations of the share and like button, what goes to the top of your feed and you get and constantly gets brought up to you is whatever gets the most popularity within your social network, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That, that changes. So it moves from a strict timeline to now preferential treatment of the most inciting content. Yes. Well, who knows if these companies knew that's what it would be. Yeah, right? sure, sure, but it sure, becomes sure. That just popular. becomes the reality. But uh, I think this is uh, telling of human nature. What got the most popularity was things that produced the most outrage right. or uh, anger or emotion. And this promotes division on a ginormous scale. That's, that's a Hebrew word that means big. <laughs> so I just want to make sure people understood your your uh, theological <laughs> vernacular. Oh, you're Sorry. funny. <laughs> All right. And um, so what this shows is that really uh, these divisions become basically the 
the motivators for Facebook's growth and uh, and Twitter's growth, because what kind of gets people staying online is more emotion, more anger, more division. Over and what's interesting, he he points this out. I, I forget maybe paragraph six or seven, where he talks about how the more that you need that uh, those kind of emotional or outrageous uh, content. Um, here to, to generate likes and shares, the more kind of minute the issues are that people divide over, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So it just continues to create fragmentation. Um, and this causes all sorts of distrust in all of our institutions and uh, parts of society, like elected leaders, health authorities, courts, police, universities, elections, um, every decision basically becomes contested because what's getting posted to the top of our feeds are the things that are bringing the most outrage, which are kind of conspiracies or, con- or contesting all of those uh, particular spheres. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what he says in this is paragraph 9. He says, I think we can date the fall of the tower to the years between 2011 and 2015 a year marked by the Great Awakening on the left and the ascendancy of Donald Trump on the right. Trump did not destroy the tower. He merely exploited exploited its fall. He was the first politician to master the new dynamics of the post-Babel era, in which outrage is the key to virality. Stage performance crushes confidence. Twitter can overpower all the newspapers in the country, and stories cannot be shared or at least trusted across more than a few adjacent fragments so that so truth cannot achieve widespread adherence. So what he's saying is the, the things that we say, whether on the, li- the left or the right, as kind of the causes of problems, are actually products of the environment of social media that rises those two problems on either side to the top, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It, back in... Um, earlier on, and he, he's about to, I think, where you were just reading, make reference to this again. I don't know if you will, but the uh, he one of the guys, one of the technicians who worked on the development of what ultimately became the retweet button, mm-hmm. um, in his own reflection on that product within the social media sphere, uh, he later on, he communicates regret uh, over having contributed to that because he says it made Twitter a nastier place, right? Yes. And he, I love this, what he says. He says that um, uh, he watched Twitter mobs form through the use of th- uh, that new tool of retweeting, and he says this, quote, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. Yes. And so Height's going to use that metaphor throughout the rest of this article to kind of talk about uh, the way that people use social media, not in a not to fatally shoot, but to socially wound and to, um, you know, politically damage or, or, or socially relationally damage and to sort of manipulatively control people through the, the, the popping off of that gun, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And so he says how this works. So he, he, t- he tells you how that works out in politics in terms of its leaders, in terms of problems on the left and the right. But then he talks about in the general kind of atmosphere of these platforms that uh, how that's worked out is there there's basically two groups on these platforms that get the most airtime that get the most of your feed and it's the two groups that are the most 
uh, polarized in opposite directions. So the people most kind of... Uh, the extremists on both sides yes. of the political aisle, which is yes. what he's focused on. Yes. Yeah. And he says those people basically become... Uh, they get the most content that gets posted or seen, and they also get the most power by consequence because it's seen as this is this is what everybody's thinking right. if that's all you're seeing online mm -hmm. and what that creates in people is oh this is what everyone's thinking i basically have to get in line on either side and there's not a uh, a balanced middle yeah. <laughs> at all he refers to that as the exhausted middle right yes the which exhausted is, majority i think the exhausted what, majority yes yeah so which is there's explain far, the word. Explain yeah, that. Yeah, the exhausted majority is like you've got, you know, let's say, and this is not the numbers, but let's say you have on the on the political social side of things, you have maybe 10% of the populations on this far right place, 10% like on the far left place, but they're the people who you're seeing content from. They're driving the conversation. They're the ones controlling the conversation, controlling the narratives, and, and they're the ones that have taken over in these sort of... Uh, in the marketplace of ideas, let's say. And so you got most people are actually sensible, are actually probably far more um, tamed, are far more non-reactive, aren't participating in or contributing to the vitriol. Mm -hmm. But we're all worn out by it, and so we're just withdrawn from the, from the conversation, so to speak. Yes. Yes, and how he puts that forward is uh, you're basically giving all these people on social media in these polarized positions, dart guns. Yeah. Where they, where they can both shoot at one another, but can also shoot at those within their own kind of sphere that dissent from the most radical positions. Right. If that makes sense. And he said, that's the problem here. Going back to that metaphor of giving a four-year-old a little gun, is when you give everyone basically these weapons to destroy each other online and those examples of destruction uh, get the most content uh, shares, then you're basically giving people a warrant to enact kind of vigilante justice on each other yeah. um, without, and it shuts down basically through fear, any civil discourse on uh, argument or reasoning with one another. Yeah, it shuts down debate, it's, it shuts down conversation, it shuts down persuasive argumentation for, against, like it, it shuts down uh, hearing one another and rationality, and it just becomes a, a sort of mob mentality, mob justice sort of uh, environment. Yeah, so this is what he says. He says, this I believe is what happened to many, Ameri many of America's key institutions in the mid to late 2010s. They got stupider in mass because social media instilled in their members a chronic fear of getting darted. The shift was most pronounced in universities, scholarly associations, creative industries, and political organizations at every level, national, state, and local. And it was so pervasive that it established new behavioral norms backed by new policies seemingly overnight. The new omnipresence of enhanced virality social media meant that a single word uttered by a professor, a leader, or journalist, even if spoken with positive intent, could lead to a social media firestorm, triggering an immediate dismissal or a drawn-out investigation by the institution. Participants in our key institutions began self-censoring to an unhealthy degree, holding back critiques of their political uh, ideas even those presented in class by their students. 
that they believed to be ill-supported or wrong. He and he ends that by saying, when an institution punishes internal dissent, it shoots darts into its own brain. It's a great line. It's a great line. Um, and so he's saying this is basically this sort of form, this culture that social media has created has shut down our ability to reason with one another to get to better outcomes. Yeah. A huge problem. And he goes on to critique how that's played itself out on both uh, the political right and the political left. Which isn't our focus. Which is not our focus. Right. No. Yeah. Um, kind of, but that kind of sets the picture of, of him showing not necessarily, his focus here, and this is a point I want to make later, is not that the problem isn't the content that he's focused on. It's the actual form or function of social media that produces this sort of environment. Yeah, and it goes, I mean, uh, we've talked about this before, I think, in, on this podcast before. Like, I, I went to, I studied journalism in college, and one of the one of the real influential thinkers within the communications academic space is a guy named Marshall McLuhan, who's responsible for this, this mantra that says mm -hmm. the median is the message, right? That it's not the content that is actually changing the way people think. It's the median through which you could deliver communication. And he was talking about that at the... Uh, when when the television was first on the scene and he was and, and radio was uh, a dominant force and so he was talking about how these medians were fundamentally changing the way and social media has done the exact same thing the medium itself has become the message as yeah it were. so I want to I want to get down into talking a little bit about his solutions before we offer what I think are some thoughts on what we have to say about this uh, he makes an important point, and this is Caleb's opinion. This isn't, you know, Caleb saying this is what the Bible says. Um, but I want to I want to make a comment on this quote of his, where he basically says we can't go back to a pre-digital age. Um, I think a lot of I, I've heard a lot of solutions, easy solutions being we should just, you know, kind of divorce ourselves from all, uh, both social media and internet interaction or use. Um, even get rid of our smartphones. Now, that's a legitimate option. I'm, I'm not saying that's not a legitimate option. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily the option that the majority of even Christians can take in their day-to-day -day lives. And I'm not just talking about necessarily getting off Twitter or deleting your Instagram account. I'm talking about the, the, the necessity in our lives of having online tools, I think it's getting harder and harder to not have them. Um, in terms of, it's getting harder and harder to have a job that doesn't require the apps of smartphones to yeah. do the work, to yeah. communicate. Um, it's getting harder and harder to uh, have professional uh, interactions without things like LinkedIn. I mean, it, it's, it, it seems to me that it's going to become harder and harder to completely close yourself off from any internet interaction. In no, I mean, I, there, there is, like any new technology, communication tool, all those things, there's, we're, we're becoming well acquainted with the, um, with the toxic components of it at this point. Mm -hmm. And there is that temptation to just sort of shun it all together maybe. 
but it's like anything else. It's like it's got this incredible capacity for destruction mm-hmm. and for um for 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 damage and harm. Uh and we have to learn how to use it. I do think there's uh, I do think that our Christianity requires us to think deeply about and to be very disciplined and decisive about how we engage with and use technology at yeah. this point. We cannot just go along with. Yeah. It has to be that. on the table to, I, to be cut out. Like for this sure. is a this is a, a a whole new area of necessary discipleship that falls, yes. I think, under the scope in the ministry of the church. Yes. As we make disciples, part of discipling has to be our relate just like if you're gonna disciple somebody, we talked recently for a few episodes about money and about wealth and about giving and mm. stewardship, right? That's a necessary thing we have to talk about in discipleship. Yes. And in the same way, we have to think seriously about uh, and talk, I think, continually right now and wrestle with what does it look like to use technology and social media in a distinctively Christian way. Yes. Yes. This is, this is now, it, it is a way that we can, we will either become worldly in our engagement with it mm-hmm. or will we become distinctively Christian yeah. in it. And this is why I say I don't think the simple answer of we just got to divorce ourselves completely from the Internet will be a helpful pastoral answer in the years to come with knowing that that will not be the option for, for most people. Yeah. Although for any individual, you might abstain from certain parts of it. Like, Absolutely. So for me, I'm at the point where I don't do any social media uh-huh. at all. Yeah. Um, I'm at the point where we're trying to do this as a church, where we're trying to do mm-hmm. quarterly fasts of some sort, like a week long, a weekend long, a couple days, something like that, and include media in that. Like, Like, I think there should be enough resets in our rhythm of life to kind of go, this thing's not going to own me. Yeah. This thing's not going to control my life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there are ways that we can, there are options of at least turning it off in ways or turning it down in ways yeah. that are, are important to consider. Yes, for sure. So he offers a couple his solutions uh, briefly. I don't really want to get into them except mention one, but I'll just mention them. He says, this is paragraph 21, what changes are needed? We must harden democratic institutions so that they can withstand chronic anger and mistrust. He means democratic, not in terms of the party, but in terms of the uh, uh, Our political representative culture. government. Yeah, representative government. Uh, second, he says we should reform social media so that it becomes less socially corrosive. And that re- he's getting into policy reform and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, he says, and we need to better prepare the next generation for democratic citizenship in this age. That's where I, that, when I saw that, I was like, hmm, that's a question I think we should be thinking of as a church in terms of how do we prepare the next generation to be Christian citizens in a di- digital age? Mm. I think that's a serious question we need to think through. Yeah. Um, one of the things he, he mentions, and I, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, in talking about preparing the next generation on paragraph 25, he says there was a, a he's quoting someone else, but he says, uh, this guy argued that free play prepares children for the art of association, and he refers to an, an older philosopher who said that uh, the key to vibrancy of American democracy um, is that we, well, he, he basically says, a generation prevented from learning these social skills 
uh, would habitually appeal to authorities to resolve disputes and would suffer from a, a coarsening of social interaction that would create a world of more conflict and violence. That's a word salad. But he basically is saying that kids who aren't in social environments um, young and have kind of free range to explore those social environments without helicopter parenting mm -hmm. um, become very sensitive and just can be destructive uh, adults because they're not used to having the courage to be in social environments and knowing how to navigate them. So this is, this is and what he, he gets at practically is how older generations, and this is a big point for Height in a lot of his writings, is older generations of kids, uh, ha they had a lot of ability to go free-range play out in, the, in their neighborhood, in the forest, yeah. in, the, in the park, and those sorts of things um, without parental supervision and with a lot of kids. Yeah. Whereas kids today, uh, parents are... are do not many times let them have that sort of free range to go out and play and kind of keep them indoors or keep them close to the house. And so there's less social interaction and free range. Yeah. Um, but Haidt argues that that's a, that's a problem because, one, it, it doesn't help your kid develop, and also some of the alternatives are actually more destructive. So how I wrote it down is we have traded letting kids have we have basically traded away kids having unsupervised play outside for unsupervised play online, mm. which I think is much more dangerous. Yeah, I mean, there are certain dangers inherent in both. Um, but, yeah, I'm trying to think through that here on the fly. I mean, I know that really most of, like, so we have six children, and five of those six, most of the time, given the opportunity, would choose all through their childhoods to have played outside with friends mm -hmm. um, rather than inside online. Yeah. So our kids have more, have, have preferred that, and I have seen it you know, there's frustrations with it. You know, they come in crying sometimes because so-and-so said this, and so-and-so did that, or they wouldn't do this. And, but that's part of the nature of when you're, when you're in person and you're outside and you've got the neighbor across the street and a couple of brother and sister that are down the road and they're all playing a game to get, like, there's a creativity that happens yeah. where they make up games mm -hmm. and they adapt new games from old existing games based mm -hmm. on what they have available. And so they learn how to make rules and how to yeah. create a system they naturally leaders form within a group like that. You, uh, you learn how to cooperate with one another for uh, whatever purposes to, in order to have a good time, in order to achieve something. I mean, we've had our kids just very organically outside end up with you know, the lemonade stand or the bake sale or the, you know, all these kinds of things where they, they formed a business together and then they go around yeah. the neighborhood trying to sell. And so there's that kind of thing. There's the necessary uh, lessons around navigating conflict and uh, experiencing consequences when you're unkind yourself and when you won't cooperate yeah. with people and having yeah. a deal. So those complicated relational dynamics. And I mean, all of those things happen oftentimes outside of our purview. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I think like, it's funny, we have uh, one of our neighbors says this and, my, and Betsy loves it. Like she, she came down to our street. This was, I don't know, a couple months, months ago. And we have 
the bulk of the kids in our neighborhood are at our house. There's a couple other houses, like mm -hmm. a family just moved in that has five kids, but they're older. Uh, another family has three that are getting old enough where they're letting their kids out to play more. And then there's a lot of like um, only one child or two child yeah, households. Yeah. And so our, our neighborhood descends on our, <laughs> on our yard, uh -huh. our street. And uh, one of our neighbors came down and she said, man, it's like the dadgum 70s down here. There's kids <laughs> running around with like, with like, uh, you know, popsicle juice on their faces yeah, yeah, yeah. and I, like wrappers for snacks are like in the floor and yeah. are on the ground and, and kids are running around with no shoes on. And, um, yeah. you know, there's just, it's like yeah. the wild, wild west out there yeah. at some level. And, um, and we love it. Yeah. Like we think it's awesome. And like, uh, I think it's, uh, I do think it's healthier than kids sitting inside being online gaming even if it's with friends or mm -hmm. with strangers um i mean there is a social dimension to that i'm not yeah. sure you do have to work together to do let's well say, there has game. to be a level of social trust you mm -hmm. mentioned when you started just saying giving your example of what's going on in your own neighborhood all of these kind of houses and and parents who you kind of know and and you you don't know like you'd you be know, surprised how little but but there's a level of social trust yeah. within the community sure. that has to take place if that yeah. exists. Okay, we've kind of rambled on about the article and then uh, some opinions about it. But I want to I want to trickle this down to the church. What should Christians take away from some of these uh, issues, if mm -hmm. that makes sense? And this is the first one, and we kind of talked about it, but is we have to recognize the danger not just of the content of these platforms, but the form of the platforms. The forms themselves. Yes. Are fundamentally changing us and impacting us. Yes. So a, a helpful Christian writer online, a guy named Samuel James, he writes this. He says, we need to think of the internet less as a singular tool or hobby and more like what it is now. This is a, uh, this is a big, these are big words, but I think they're beautiful. He says, the internet is an immersive epistemological habitat in which hundreds of millions of people have regular active membership. The internet has transformed the way humans read, learn, communicate, labor, shop, create, and even worship. No other technology is as disruptive to traditional forms of human activity. Hmm. So what he's saying like that, that is the internet by its very form is changing the way we know and understand and learn things yeah. and, and live in certain ways. And that, that's not content. That's the actual medium itself that is changing that. Mm -hmm. And as Haidt lays out in, the, in his article, uh, social media must be seen as a root cause uh, through its form, not just its downstream contents. Mm -hmm. Big point. Okay, here's a related takeaway that we didn't talk about. That is the dumbing down of our ability to understand and discern biblical truth. I think the form of social media and this kind of cesspool that we've walked through has has the potential to really damage our ability to understand and study the Bible. So what do I mean by that? Well, as the internet has kind of uh, become so mobile and it has um, kind of changed our ability and how we actually receive content, uh, we basically prime ourselves to form beliefs based on kind of immediate intuitions rather than walking through a detailed argument. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think even if you go beyond studying the Bible, just I think it, I think it um, diminishes our capacity to think deeply. Yes. 
And the reason it does that is because, and you know, you've always had, let's say, some guru class of people uh, in the modern world where there's been like a, a public thinkers that have great insight into you mm-hmm. know philosophy or truth or theology or whatever it might be. Um, but what we have now through things like social media, through YouTube, is that basically you get you get inundated with videos, podcasts, ideas, and as soon as you hear one in a form you like or agree with, something that resonates with you, yeah, um, it doesn't even have to be like you don't even have to have thought it out intentionally. But somebody says something in a three-minute video that you just watched, mm-hmm. and it resonates, yeah. And you haven't yourself thought deeply enough about it to articulate that, yeah. but it resonates with you. And now you lean into that take. Maybe you press into that individual and you get more of their content yeah. and then you start to form that. But what it does is it sets up surrogate thinkers for you yes. so that you don't have to do any of the thinking. Yes. And I think we can even do that in a, in our discipleship. Yes. So you're, you, let's say you're a Christian and you're walking with Jesus and you hear a Christian teacher or author Mm -hmm. or speaker or whatever. And he says things that you're like, I really like that. That sounds great. That resonates with my soul and my spirit. Okay. So you lean in, but you haven't started doing the work of, uh, like you said, of studying the Bible, reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, getting the word of God into your heart, wrestling with nuances of scripture and theology. You've just started settling for the, 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 the take of another individual who maybe they've studied deeply. Mm Mm-hmm. But you haven't still. Yeah. You've heard theirs and you're settling for what they're spoon feeding you. Yeah. And so you have what you think is a very deep insight. But the truth is, is that you've come to it in a very shallow way. And so it doesn't take deep root in you. Yes. Oftentimes. And the form is training us to revert to those avenues of uh, understanding things or, Mm -hmm. or gaining content rather than kind of the harder work of study. Mm-hmm. So for instance, when you and I looked at this article by Hyatt and we saw the link, we're like, oh, <laughs> right? We'd rather, I think most people would, hear a two-minute summary of that article right. on YouTube of somebody giving me their or hot A 40-minute summary right? on your favorite local church podcast. Yeah, this is why the <laughs> documentary thing is, documentaries are so powerful because they kind of, they're 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 presented as a way to skip deep research and actually just kind of passively intake the story and even uh, in an easier and maybe a more emotional setting mm-hmm. um, where it becomes we become trained basically not to want to do the hard work. Yeah, and the problem is the gospel is about deep work in the depths of your soul. Yes, you can't do microwave gospel transformation. That, that leads to genuine uh, maturity. And so when you get really well thought out theological points from deep thinkers and well-studied individuals, but all you've done is sort of um, uh, uh, imported them, right? There's been no, none of the hard work, none of the blood, sweat, and tears spilt yourself over those things. Yeah. It, it might be something you believe, but... But it has, it's not something that has changed you necessarily. Yeah. It's something that um, it becomes, you know, we're in this series called uh, Truth for Life, right? Mm-hmm. It, and, and we might grab hold of truth, but we haven't allowed the truth to necessarily pervade our living. Yeah. 
And I think that's why you have a lot of that within the church today. Yeah. And specifically what we're talking about is the, the actual uh, form of scrolling and internet kind of quick takes mm -hmm. that social media produces. It puts in conflict in our brains the ability to actually sit down and, and focus on one thing for a long time. So a guy named uh, Nicholas Carr who wrote a book called uh, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, uh, he writes this. He says, given our brain's plasticity, we know that our online habits continue to reverberate in the workings of our, our synapses when we're not online. We can assume that the neural circuits devoted to scanning, skimming, and multitasking are expanding and, and expanding and strengthening, while those used for reading and thinking deeply with sustained concentration are weakening or eroding. Mm. So he's saying that constant quick take or thumbing through your feed or, or scanning or, or going from YouTube to YouTube. Or 140 video. or 280 character summaries yes. of massive arguments or lines of thinking. It actually trains your brain to refuse to do the hard work of reading long paragraphs or focusing in, on one setting. Mm -hmm. It puts those two things in conflict. And this is serious when we think of the medium which God has given us to obtain his truth. Hmm. The point. Bible is not a simplistic book. No. It is not a quick take book. It's not, not every book is, is written in Proverbs, right? It's, it, it takes serious, sustained, long-term. And we're, we're, we're not, this isn't denying that the gospel is simple and clear, but the Bible is a magnificent book in terms of how, when we study it, it takes more than just simply a hot take, mm -hmm. if that oh, makes it's, sense. There's so many um, contours and, and um, dimensions to studying and understanding the scriptures. It's so fascinating. It's so compelling. It's so beautiful. It is so simple, and yet it is so complicated in certain mm -hmm. ways. And, and yeah, we live in like this microwave world, and forgive my, the metaphor with my preferred uh, uh, way of cooking now, like the, the, the gospel and the, the truths of the Bible are, are more slow cooked, right? Like it's more of like a smoker kind of thing than it is a microwave kind of thing. Yes. And we've got a lot of microwaved Christianity right now that needs to be put on the smoker. Yes. <laughs> and where I think this comes out the most is in very contested and tense areas where in order to grasp and understand what the Bible is teaching now about something, take something like sexuality and gender. It requires sustained biblical argumentation that understands the narrative of the Bible, the interrelationship between different books of the Bible, the, the implications of certain biblical texts and passages, there's a lot of issues that it's well, like, insufficient to just proof text. Yeah. And so yet like, we live in such a proof texting type of world. On that, on, just on that point, for example, was when we did this series recently on Song of Songs at Generations, mm -hmm. one of the things I said over and over again was that the Bible does not only teach as truth that which it explicitly states. Mm -hmm. it, it also teaches as truth through that which it celebrates. Right. Yes. Or it, through that, which it, it, it corrects us through that, which it criticizes. Mm -hmm. And so many people want to go, well, where does the Bible say 
you know, this is wrong or this is right or this yeah. is the only way. And it's like, no, you have to look at, like you just said, like there's a lot more um, texture than that going yeah. on. So the danger that we're talking about is not necessarily that you, you look at the, what are uh, the uh, serious arguments or, or truths of Scripture and you reject them. It's that through the dumbing down of your abilities to study and understand through social media, you may not have the capacity because of those things to really sit down and have a sustained reading of Scripture because you've numbed yourself to that sort of study through yeah. the easiness of the forms online that we immerse ourselves I, in. I mean, I, I, you said social media. I could argue that well-meaning devotional books have done this to us. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Even long before social media. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a number. So the, like having an approach to things like reading, both the scriptures and then maybe other content, where you read a range of approaches or a range of things. So you have things like articles from certain publications or certain websites or blogs or whatever. You have podcasts, you have books, and then reading different kinds of books. Like trying to be intentional about a diversity of approaches to how you learn. Like yes. don't learn just one way. Yes. Right? Learn in a variety of ways. Yes. Yes. Okay, so I want to hit on one more before we're done here and we can close. I, that's such a preacher thing to say. We can close. <laughs> the band can come back up. Congratulations, <laughs> you're maturing in ministry, Caleb. The band can come back up. <laughs> um, is talking about civil discourse and the idea of quarreling. Mm. So one of the things that Haidt argues in his article as a society is that we need spaces and a development of healthy dialogue amongst each other that's um, charitable, and winsome and has integrity and is not slanderous. Um, and that, ha if there's any issue I can think of that is, that has trickled down to the church in this area of in a very social, destructive in way. a very destructive way, um, is the lack of uh, charitable discourse between Christians online. Um, man, is that a big problem? A huge problem. Yeah, not I, I, I. So I think this is something we have to think seriously about, and it's certainly something we've tried to highlight in our own. I think we've tried to do that here on weekday worship, which is something we talk about explicitly from the pulpit at times too, as well as just in. Um, I think it's conversations that happen. In fact, um, I think our church largely has done really well with this. It's partly why our church has held together pretty well through some some pretty tense uh, mm -hmm. cultural times here. But it's something that matters for how we dialogue with other Christians. It's also, it also matters a lot for how we interact with the world around us. Yes. And I'm absolutely convinced, as you guys know, I've said this a million ways, a million times that, um, one of the lowest hanging fruit <laughs> kind of scenarios for us as Christians and our distinction from the world right now is gentleness, reasonableness, attentiveness, like, you exhibit those qualities with mm -hmm. people who think differently than you, whether that about a nuanced thing theologically that's with a Christian brother or sister, or whether that's with somebody who rejects Christianity outright yeah. and is even hostile to Christianity. If we would develop and demonstrate and exhibit to one another in the world around us that kind of calmness and poise 
and measuredness in terms of our response. Um, I, I think that's one way that we need to allow the truth to inform how we live. Yes. Right? Yes. Is take really seriously not just the theological positions we hold to, mm-hmm. but the personal dispositions with which we hold to them. Yes. Yes. And I, and I, and I think we can say this. Um, the one of the first people that needs to be held accountable in this area is pastors. Oh, it's yeah. Pastors for sure. have over the last few years been some of the worst at saying things online against other brothers and sisters that they would never talk that way to them in personally. Person. Yeah, they would never do that. Yeah, good men and who are are good pastors, but. Somehow this medium, again, I think it's the form, actually creates an environment where this is just naturally, this is what happens, quote, you hear this all the time, well, that's just how it happens online. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I do not see a biblical distinction of our character online no. and our character in person. And no. I think that's an area where, where we need to really all check ourselves. What pastors are not is in terms of, there is not a, the, the, you, these are not two different lives you are living. Again, you have this dream world online, this other reality, and you have your... It's like, no, God holds you accountable for both places. <laughs> yeah. For both places. We should be able to speak into each other's lives and not only how we're acting in person, but how we're acting online. Mm-hmm. It should be completely reasonable for me to go to a brother or sister and they come to me and say, hey, I, I saw you getting in a, in a comment war with somebody online. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. You know, do you think that was fruitful? Do you think that was worth it? Do you, would you have talked that way to somebody if they were standing in front of you? Yeah. You know, I, I don't see a lot of that conversation going on that probably needs to be had. Yeah. I, I watched something on YouTube the other day, the, the, you know, a suggested video, uh-huh. and it was a debate between a pro-life Christian and a professing Christian who... I don't believe to be a Christian, uh, who is also happened to be pro-choice. And so they were having this debate specifically around abortion. And, um, I found myself in 100% agreement with what the pro-life person argued, mm-hmm. the points that they made, the content of their argumentation. And yet I found the way that they made their case, the way they were shouting down the other person, the way they were caricaturing the other person's perspective, sort of straw manning their arguments, which I think were bad arguments. Mm-hmm. Like I, I found the, the, the one who I would say, I do believe that person to be a Christian. I think they're arguing for the right truth, but I found the way they did it kind of off putting, to be honest with you mm-hmm. and kind of beneath the truth that they're professing. Yeah. And the other person I found their argumentation to be unsound, to be clunky, but they maintained a sort of posture that I found to be more attractive. Yeah. And I'm not saying that makes them right and the other person wrong. I'm just saying they both matter. Mm-hmm. And I think it. Yes. I think it's. I think we bear this burden, um, not because of the cultural moment. I think we bear this burden biblically, mm-hmm. according to God's word and our representing Him, that we 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 want to contend for the truth of the gospel and its implications in all of life. Mm-hmm. But we need to do so in a way that tells the truth about, about Jesus 
not just the not just say the truth about Jesus. We need to embody that truth yes. about Jesus in yes. a more faithful way alongside the truth itself. Yes. The world we're called to witness to includes the online world. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Although, I would say that I would encourage people towards a far deeper engagement with the, <laughs> the in-person world Absolutely. around them. And I think it would be to our advantage. In fact, I do think that if as Christians we became less involved with and impacted by the online digital world and more engaged with the actual world in person that we can taste, touch, see, and we, if we would focus our energies there, I think we'd find ourselves to be far more impactful on the world. Because in the end, one of the things we've learned about these forms is there's not a lot of persuasion that happens in the digital world. Yeah, There's mostly what you said earlier. There's mm-hmm. mostly arguments. And it's, it's possible to make that argument sound and to make it mm-hmm. in an attractive way, but whether or not a person's going to be persuaded yeah. by you... <laughs> Is and the form pretty... itself is built to reinforce radical ideas, right. not change. Yeah, the or... form is the the form feeds confirmation bias, and so I think we ought to think deeply about mm-hmm. whether that's a, a, a worthwhile use of our time and energy mm-hmm. um, as a as a point of engagement, both but, as a contributor and a consumer. Yeah, but to the extent that we engage with things, I do yes. think there's a, a yes. requirement for us in this way. Okay, we're probably way over, so we're. No, uh, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. Not too bad. Okay. Well, let me just the end with, want with, uh, no. with Ephesians four thirty one. There's so much here to go to Titus three on. <laughs> yeah. But one of us is going to be preaching. Pre- I think you're going to preach in a couple weeks. So, hear the sermon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on Titus three, but uh, just hear Paul's words here in Ephesians four. This is to the church. I I think this goes for online too. He says. In Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, a, be, a wonderful word, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You're the pastor. Commentate on it. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. 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 We'll let the apostle have the last Speak word. Speak for himself, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll be back next week with uh, a little perpetua. And uh, we'll we'll see if it's to James' liking. It'll be a three this to seven minute series episode. On we hope you enjoy it. Hey, I, this, I love this stuff. <laughs> I'm just I love this stuff. Uh, we love you guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>